0: Okay, if you have your Bibles today, turn to the book of Genesis, and we'll be in chapter number 42, Genesis chapter number 42. I was listening on the radio yesterday, and a couple of pastors from California were being interviewed, and they basically were asking the question, what is this that our government has done to us? I mean, how can our government, and they're, they're speaking in, a, in an area where the government's really been tight on churches, how can our governor, go, governor tell us when we can go to church, and once we go to church, how many people can go to church? And so a lot of the pastors in California supposedly are actually opening this weekend, and they're opening their doors to everybody, and they're going to have full services, uh, And the reason they're doing that, because they believe that the governor's orders in California are a violation of the First Amendment. I would think so, too. But then I don't know if you read what happened Friday. It kind of got buried in the bottom of the news. But the Supreme Court ruled Friday that the governor does have the right to tell us when we can meet and how many people can meet when we meet. In a situation like we're in now, uh, you kind of throw the Constitution out. That's what the Supreme Court ruled, which is pretty bad. Uh, it's pretty bad that John Roberts would vote that way, supposedly a conservative justice, and he sided with the liberal side in this case, but, but I don't know what's gonna happen in California now because they're gonna pretty much have to follow the governor's rules or, or again, uh, they're going to be uh, subject to having their power shut off, their insurance canceled, their building loans called, and so so they're in a really tough situation there. At, you know, in the midst of this pandemic that we're in, in the midst of all of these riots we see, in the midst of these thousands upon thousands of deaths from this coronavirus, uh, in the midst of these shattered economies all around the world, these government shutdowns and government takeovers, there's one question that I don't hear being asked, and I probably won't hear it being asked, and that is not so much what has the government done to us, but what is this that God has done to us? Now, is that a valid question? Some of you would say it's not, but to me it is. Uh, Because I believe that God is sovereign and that he is still on his throne. And if he is sovereign and he's still on his throne, and he is, then whatever happens, he's done it. At the very least, he's allowed it to be done. And if he's allowed it to be done, then you could say, he's done it. So the big question today isn't what is this China has done to us or what is this the governor has done to us or what is this the new world order has done to us. I hear all of these things being blamed on this. What is this the devil has done to this to, to us? What is this and right along that line what is this that Nancy Pelosi has done to us? What is this that Donald Trump has done to us, or what is this that the Democrats have done to us, or what is this that the Republicans have done to us? What is this that the Supreme Court has done to us? Now, the question should be this. What is this that God has done to us? That's the question we need to ask today as as Americans, as we see our cities burning. What is this that God has done to us? That's what we need to ask as a church, as we see churches shut down all over America. And, and that's a question you and I need to be asking as individuals as this thing gets, affects our lives more and more in a, in a negative way. We need to be asking the question, what is this that God has done to us? Now, that's really a great question, and let me tell you why that's a great question to be asking, because when you ask that question, you're acknowledging that God is so sovereign over all the affairs of this earth. You know, most people don't see it that way, and let me tell you why. There's two main reasons people don't see it that way. Some people believe that God is transcendent, and He is, but they believe that that's all He is, that He's totally transcendent. What I mean by transcendent, he is totally above all of this, beyond all of this. He transcends all of this. And in some ways, he does because he is totally holy. But they believe in a deistic form of theology, which says that God is up there, we're down here, God has set these things in motion, and, and then we do what we want to do, and God just watches over it and, and lets it happen. That's the way some people see God in his creation. There's another group of people on the other end of the scope who believe that God is is not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He is actually impotent. He really can't handle the coronavirus. He really can't handle I mean, those riots that are taking place in Los Angeles or in Minnesota, they're beyond God's power to do anything about. That's the way they see God. Even the Pope himself said this about God. He said, God is not some fairy who can wave a magic wand and create the universe by just his word. God isn't a fairy, he's right. But God can create the universe by his word and that's exactly what the Bible tells he he did. And if we don't believe in a God like that, we've got the wrong God. We're praying to the wrong God and that's why you hear people's prayers and they really pray for the wrong things. Because they really don't believe in an all powerful God. They really don't believe in an imminent God. God is, God is transcendent, but He's also imminent. He's involved in His creation, He's involved in everything that happens on this earth. He is sovereign over everything that happens on this earth. And that brings us to the story of Genesis today, because as we look at the story of Genesis, even Joseph's derelict brothers, have enough theological common sense, we're going to see that to know that the things that were happening to them were were under the direct or indirect control of God. So when they saw their world crumbling around them, you know what they did? They asked the question, what is this that God has done to us? And that's a question that I think all of us want to be asking in the world in which we live in today. So we want to go to the text, and we're in Genesis chapter 42, and what we want to do today is look at the circumstances that brought them to the point that they asked that question and, and maybe see why that question and that answer to that question are so pertinent to us today in this strange time in which we live. Well, let me set the setting first of all. When we begin chapter 42, if you remember, there was a great famine in the land. Just as Pharaoh had had dreamed about that famine, the famine came, first the years, seven years of plenty, then the great famine. And the famine got so bad that it reached the land of Canaan, where, of course, Jacob and his sons were living. And they were running out of food, but they knew that there was grain in Egypt. The reason they knew there was grain in Egypt because Israel is a land bridge between Egypt and the rest of the world. And so so they saw these caravans coming down uh, empty and then going back up, with food, and so they knew that they were getting their food down in Egypt. And so Joseph sends his ten sons, ten of his sons. He won't let Benjamin go, but he sends them to Egypt. And lo and behold, they get to Egypt, and guess who they encounter? They encounter none other than their brother Joseph, the one they had sold into slavery some 22 years earlier. And he's the one they got to deal with in order to get the grain. And when they see him, they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him because now he's, instead of 17, he's 40 years old. Uh, he's clean-shaven, and he had had a beard when they had seen him the last time. He had a beard most of his, you know, from the, probably the time he was 15 to the time they sold him at 17. Uh, he had aged. Uh, he was wearing all of, this, uh, royal, royal, all of these royal garments, and, and uh, he was speaking Egyptian. So they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And I got to tell you, Joseph was a sharp cookie. I mean, you talk about a guy who could think on his feet. Joseph could think on his feet. And he doesn't even go and pray about it. He, he devises a plan right away. And what his plan is, is to teach them a lesson. He wants to teach them a lesson, while at the same time, he wants to see if his, if, if his father and his younger brother are alive. And if they are alive, he wants to be reunited with them. And so he begin, his plan begins this way. He tells the brothers, his brothers, he says, You guys are spies. You are spies who were sent down by a foreign government to spy out the land, to see where the weaknesses are, and then to invade the land and steal the food. And I mean when they heard him say that, they knew what they did to spies in Egypt, so they began to tremble. And they said, and, and he spoke to them really harshly. He didn't, he wouldn't give them a kind word at all. He didn't even say hi, he says, You guys are spies. And, and what did they do with spies in Egypt? They killed spies. They executed spies. And so they're, they're shaken, And, uh, uh, hey, they, de- they deny the fact that they, right away they begin their denial. They, remember how they began it. They said, we are honest men. Now, I know Joseph had to bite his tongue at that point when they said they were honest men. He knew they were anything but honest men. But they are going to tell him the truth about their situation. They said that we're honest men. We're family men from Canaan where we live with our father, and we live with our younger brother and the rest of the clan. So Joseph pretends to, 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 to not to believe them, and so he throws them into prison. And they stay in prison for three days, and when they go to prison, they don't know how long they're going to be in prison. As far as they're concerned, they could be in prison for the rest of their lives. They could be executed any day. And so, so here they are in prison, and they have a chance to reflect on their lives and and uh, they come to the conclusion I think a pretty good conclusion that God has done this to them that God's the one who's wrecked their lives and they believe he's wrecked their lives because he's punishing them for the terrible things that they did in earlier in their lives uh, maybe to the Shechemites, but also especially to what they did to their own brother Joseph when they sold him as a slave to the Midianites. So they're in prison. They don't know how long they're going to be there. But after three days, Joseph releases them. And he tells them, he gives them the plan. He said, this is the plan. I'm going to keep one of you here. I'm going to let, I'm going to sell you some grain and i am going to let you go back with the grain back to your home in Canaan, But I'm going to keep one of your brothers as a prisoner until you come back. You're going to come back, and you're going to want more grain. And when you come back, you better bring your younger brother with you. And so he seizes Simeon. He binds Simeon, and he has Simeon thrown into prison. And then they're free to leave. And uh, they, Joseph releases them, and uh, they head off to Canaan. But th- before they leave, This is where we come to today. Joseph does something that's going to really blow their minds. It's going to really confuse them. They're not going to know what's going on. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse number 25 of of chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, verse number 25. Then Joseph gave a command to one of his servants to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So he gives them provisions for the journey and they probably knew the provisions were given to them and they think, well, that's really nice of this this Lord to give us these provisions. I mean, that's quite a perk for buying grain from him. But here's where the trouble comes in verse number 26. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened the sack to give his donkey feed as the in, at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored. Now, that's a strange thing. Nobody does that. Nobody gives you your money back for something you bought. And there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed. They weren't excited about getting the money back. Their hearts melted at this point. Not melted in love, but melted in fear. Uh, And they were afraid, very afraid, saying to one another, watch this, what is this that God has done to us? Now, why did their hearts fail? Well, let me tell you why their hearts failed. Because they figured they had been framed. They figured somebody who didn't like them for some reason, maybe didn't like Jews, somebody had returned their money, and no doubt they had gone to the Lord of Egypt back to Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph, and told him that, hey, these guys never paid. They told him one or two things. They never paid for the grain that they took, or that they stole the money that they used to pay for the grain. And so uh, uh, they knew at this point that Joseph, or that Lord, that mean Lord who had spoken so harshly to them, was going to hold them accountable if ever they returned. If ever they returned, he was going to throw them into prison or he was going to have them executed. If they didn't return, it still wasn't a good situation because he was holding Simeon as a hostage and he would probably keep Simeon as a hostage the rest of his life in prison or he would have Simeon killed. So there was no good way out of this, and their hearts failed. Now, they didn't think that God himself had literally put the money in the sack. They knew that somebody else had done it. Uh, but they figured that God was probably behind it. And they were right. And so they asked the question, again, looking at this, they asked the question, what is this that God has done for me, Now, are done to us. Some commentators would say that they asked the wrong question because it wasn't God that had put the money in the sack. It was Joseph who had the money put in the sack. And really, ultimately, it was their actions against Joseph that had caused Joseph to put the money in the sack. So the question that they should have been asking isn't what is this that God has done to us. The question they should have been asking, according to some commentators, is what is this that we have done to ourselves? And maybe that was an appropriate question to ask at that time. But that still isn't near as pertinent as the question that they ask. Because when they ask what is this that God has done to us, they were acknowledging the fact that God was sovereign over their situation and that God was sovereign over Joseph's actions. They didn't know it was Joseph, but he was sovereign over this Lord that they were dealing with. He was sovereign over his actions and he was sovereign over their actions. Even everything they had done to Joseph, God was sovereign over that. God didn't do the evil, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that. But God was sovereign over the evil that they did. The evil that they did was part of his providential will. So God was sovereign over all of that. And so all that was happening here was ultimately being done by God. Now why would God do that to them? Well, for several reasons. One, he wanted to discipline them, no doubt. Uh, I think he he wanted to punish them, no doubt. Uh, But he also... Was showing and even his punishment and his discipline is really part of his love but he was showing love to them he was trying to convict them of just how evil they were and to get them to repent of their sin to get them to acknowledge that what they had done to Joseph what they had done to Shechem what they had done their whole lives— their life were full of sin but that wasn't the only thing that God was trying to do he wasn't just trying to bring them to a point of repentance He was ultimately trying to get them back together with Joseph and for them to be a family again and for them all to move to Egypt where that nation would be nurtured into the great nation that it became that exited Egypt and went into the wilderness and there later on into the promised land. Now, let's pick back up in verse number 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land. I see, they, are, they make this 250-mile journey. They arrive back in Canaan, and uh, they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and they told him everything that happened to them. And here, they tell the truth at this point. They say, the man who is, is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us. Can you believe that, Dad? He spoke really roughly to us. Did he know who we are? Who does he think he is to speak roughly to us? And he took us. I mean, he, 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 he thought we were spies. All we were there doing was getting grain, and he thought we were spies of the country. But we said to him, we've we straightened him out. We said to him, we are honest men. I think at this point, Jacob had to bite his tongue too, just like Joseph had earlier. Uh, we are not spies. We are, uh, we are 12 brothers, sons of our fathers. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father Uh, This day, in the land of Canaan. So, then he says, then the then the name, then the man, the lord of the country said to us, by this I will know that you are honest man. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your household and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies. For, and he just rehearses everything that happened. But that you are honest man. Again, Joseph said it twice. You, you, these guys weren't honest man. And so he, he, you, you guys who say you're honest man, uh, I'll know that you're honest man like you say you are. And I will grant your brother Simeon back to you and you may trade in the land and you may buy grain, the grain you need uh, to survive this famine, and then in verse number thirty-five, uh, they finish telling, rehearsing the story, and then it happened. Here they are. Joseph has told them everything that has happened to. I mean, the brothers have told them everything that happened to them uh, in 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 Egypt when they ran into their brother Joseph, although they didn't know it was their brother. And then it happened as they emptied their sacks. That surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now they really think they're in big trouble because not only did one of the brothers have his money returned to him, all of the brothers had the money returned to them. And they figured for sure that Joseph knew that, that that money was missing. Somebody had told him that that money was missing and that they had either stolen it or that they had not paid for their grain. And so now, really, they're in their minds, they're thinking, what is this that God has done to me or done to us? And now Jacob tunes in, and he speaks. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me, Joseph is, is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? And then he says, and, and literally this says, All things are against me. This is the way Joseph saw his life at this point. All things were against him. You ever feel like that? That all things are against you? Why why does he say here that Simeon is no more? Well, I'll tell you why he says that Simeon is no more. Because in his mind, Simeon was as good as dead. Because to get Simeon back, he was going to have to... uh, uh, send Benjamin uh, the next time they went to get grain, and Jacob wasn't going to let Benjamin go, at least at this point. In his mind, he's saying, I'm not going to let him go, and so Simeon is as good as dead. And, and, and uh, then he sums up his situation in that last part of that verse, and he says that all things are against me. He, that's the way he viewed his present situation, and that's the way he... Feud his whole life at this point you ever get there you ever feel like all things are against you be careful when you do reach that point that you feel like all things are against you that you don't forget that all things have been working for you good too and Jacob forgot that J- Jacob forgot that as far as he could see Joseph was dead there was this famine in the land Simeon was in prison he wasn't gonna get Simeon back Uh, They were wanting to take Benjamin, and he wasn't going to let them take Benjamin. And and so, uh, you know, all things were working against him. You know, the Bible tells us to forget not his benefits. And and there's a reason the Bible tells us that. Because there are going to come times in our life when it's going to seem like all things are against us. And we, when we, when, and at that point, we've got to go back, and we've got to remember how God has worked so many wonderful things in our life. Otherwise, let me tell you what's going to happen: we're going to begin to filter everything through a glass of pessimism, and and we're gonna we're gonna act pessimistically instead of optimistically. I'll tell you what: you look around this world right now, and that's a real easy thing to do. It's real easy to look through the glass darkly and to see to to see this world in a very pessimistic way to see our own lives in a very pessimistic way and conclude that all things are against us. But Jacob was wrong, wasn't he? All things weren't against Jacob. Think about the situation here. I mean, just think about Jacob's life. Jacob was chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be the heir of the great Abrahamic covenant. He was to birth of the entire nation of Israel. I mean, had God worked with him? God had met him at Bethel. He had appeared to him at Bethel. He had seen Jacob's ladder. God had been with him when he was with his uncle Laban all those years, those 20 years or so, and he prospered him during that time when he went back to, to, to Israel or back to Canaan. Uh, and he met his brother. It was God who changed Esau's heart and kept Esau from killing him. I mean, Jacob actually actually wrestled with God. He had his name changed. His name was changed to Israel. Uh, He thinks his son Joseph is dead, and he thinks he'll never see Simeon again, and and, and he thinks all things are against him. But really, what's happening here? All things are working together for his good. What is God doing in all of this? He's getting him back to a point where he can not only live and not starve, but to a point that he can be reunited with his son, Joseph. So God's working great things in his life, and and, and all of a sudden in his mind, the only thing he can see is the negative part of his life. And he sees his entire life as negative. Be real careful about that. I know there's times in my own life when when I see everything through a glass of pessimism when I just forget all of the wonderful things that God has done in my life. And and shame on us when we do that, because we have to believe that God is working together for our good. Then verse number 37, it says, then Reuben spoke to his father. Now, Jacob at this point says, look, there's no way Benjamin is going back with y'all to Egypt when we need more food Simeon Simeon's toast just forget Simeon there's no way we're gonna you're you're taking Benjamin back and if he won't sell food to you without Benjamin Benjamin will just have to die but so Reuben speaks up for his brother I mean Reuben and Simeon were really close Uh, they were the oldest sons and so so Reuben spoke to his father saying kill my two sons I'm gonna go get my brother and I'm gonna go get food next time and you can kill my, and t- let Benjamin go with me, and you can kill my two sons if you do not bring if I do not bring him back to you. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put him in my hands, let me take him, and I will bring him back to you. Now he's a pretty confident, cocky little guy, isn't he? I mean, he's saying, you know, I'm not afraid of. Egypt. I'm not afraid of this guy who spoke harshly to us. Well, that guy who spoke harshly to them was in control of all the armies of Egypt, which were the greatest armies in the world. Now, how was Reuben going to go up there and break Simeon out of prison? And if he didn't bring Benjamin, uh, this lord of Egypt wasn't going to give Benjamin to him. So, so he's talking really boldly here. And he's talking really rashly. And It's a stupid vow because, I mean, do you think, actually, if he went down there and he didn't come back with Benjamin, that Jacob would go and kill his two grandsons? I mean, nobody would kill their grandsons. Grandkids are better than the kids. So, so, so he wouldn't kill his, his, his grandkids. There's no way. So this is a really rash and stupid vow. And a lot of times I think we make rash and stupid vows. Then, then the last verse right here that we'll look at today. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. uh, Jacob says this. Jacob says, my son's not going to go down with you because Joseph is dead, and Benjamin is is the only son I have left. Now, that's really what he says there, literally. Benjamin is the only son I have left. If any calamity should befall him among the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. You see what he's saying right there? You see what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying right there? He said, the only thing I have left to live for in my life is Benjamin. And if Benjamin is taken away, you might as well kill me. You might as well kill me because I don't want to live. And might just let my old gray head go down to the grave in sorrow because I don't want to live if I don't have Benjamin. What a terrible thing to say to your sons. It shows you why they were one of many reasons why they were so messed up. I mean Job, Jacob Jacob really I don't even think he, he really loved his older sons. What a terrible thing to say to your wife I mean. A terrible thing to say to Leah, to his concubines. What a terrible thing to say, you know what, if I don't have Benjamin, life isn't worth living. What a terrible thing to say to your grandchildren, to all your friends, to all those servants that love Jacob. I don't care about any of you. The only one I care about is Benjamin. And in effect, He was saying the same thing to God. He was saying, what is this that you've done to me? You're the one who put me in this position. And I don't really care about you. The only thing I have left to care about, I don't care about the promise. I mean, he's as bad as Esau was. And this is way past the time of Esau. I mean, years and years and years, decades and decades and decades have passed at this point, and he's still, when things get tough, he's ready to throw everything out the window and say, all things are against me, and I don't deserve what's happening to me, uh, and God, you've done this to me. The only thing I care about is Benjamin. I remember in the movie, True Grit, when Maddie Moss shoots Tom Chaney, the evil guy who had killed her father. And then he's left by the gang to, to deal with her and, and John Wayne, my heroes, chasing, chasing after him and coming to get him. And he says, all things are against me. Everything is against me. And really, what he was saying was, I don't deserve what's happened to me. He deserved more than what was happening to him. But we're so quick to think we're in a bad situation and all things are against us and we don't deserve this. And life isn't worth living anymore. That's exactly what Joseph was saying. Life just isn't worth living anymore. All I care about is Benjamin, and if I love Benjamin, life is over. What is this, Lord? What is this, God, that you have done to me? I wonder... How many of you, how many of us have asked that question at some point in our life? Where we've truly taken inventory of our life, we looked at our situation, and we've asked the question, what is this that you have done to me? You know, actually, I don't think many people ever asked that question. I don't, think they, I don't think many people in this room, many people in this world, actually see God as doing things to them, hard things. I I hear people all the time blame things on Satan. Well, Satan certainly brings evil into the world. A lot of what we see going on in our world right now is demonic, I can tell you right now. But God is still on his throne. And God isn't directing those demons to do those evil things or through those evil people do those evil things. God isn't doing that. But God could stop it just like this. And he doesn't stop it. And when bad things come into your life, it might be the devil that causes it. But God is set on his throne and he's allowed it to come into your life. And I believe it's a very appropriate question, a great question, to ask the Lord when trouble comes into your life. Don't just say, well, poor God, I wish he could do something about this. We'll pray for Wisdom for the doctors, and we'll pray for wisdom for, for uh, the governor, and wisdom for this. But, but wait a minute, what, why are we in this situation, God? What is this that you've done to us? And when we do that, the reason I say it's a great question, because when we do that, we're acknowledging the fact that God is imminent, that he's heavily involved in our life. And that he's sovereign over our life. Now, listen, if you're here today and you don't, you're not a born-again believer, you, you might as well tune this out because it doesn't apply to you, and I'm sure you probably have already tuned it out. But if, it, but if you're a born-again believer, God is eminently involved in your life. In everything that happens in your life, every breath you take, every beat of your heart, God is involved in it. If you, if you don't believe that, you don't believe in the same God I believe in. You don't believe the God of the Bible because that's what we're taught in the Bible. And, 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 and that's a good thing to ask that question. It's a good thing when times are tough saying, Lord, Lord, what is this you've done to us? And I, I'll tell you why it's a good thing. Not only do you recognize that God is sovereign over your life, it leads you to the really next really good question, and that is why? Why, God, have you done this to us? And that really should have been the question what these brothers were asking. And really it should have been the question what Jacob was asking. Lord, why have you done this to me? Why am I in this situation? I mean, Jacob was culpable here every bit as much as his sons were culpable because he raised those sons to be the derelicts they were. So, why have you done this, Lord? Why have you done this? Lord, You know, whenever anything goes bad in my life, that's the first question I ask. I I I say, Lord, why have you done this to me? I mean, I get mad mad at God sometimes. Lord, why have you done this to me? Why? What is this you've done? Why have you done it? Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this trial I'm going through? What lesson do you want me to learn? And you can blame it on Satan and you can say, well, I'm a really, you know, I'm doing just great and Satan's just harassing me because I'm a great Christian. That's, that's what a lot of people do. There ain't many great Christians out there. Let me tell you that Satan only mess with most of us because we're not worth messing with. We're not doing enough to cause him any, any trouble. But, but all of us need to be asking why. Why is this happening? Is there some lesson, Lord, you want to teach me? Is there something I've done or I'm doing? You know what? It's amazing how, as Christians, we can live in sin and be blind to the fact we're living in sin. We just ignore the fact we're living in sin. And God taps us on the shoulder, and then he kicks us in the rear, and then he throws us off the cliff. Now, he's going to catch us before we fall. But we need to ask, at some point, we need to ask, why? Why? Why are all these things happening to me? What are you trying to teach me? What am I involved in that I need to repent of? And maybe, Lord, what, do, what are you trying to get me to do? Maybe God's trying to get us to, to be involved in helping somebody else. To not be so selfish and to help somebody else. And so till he does these things to us. So those are good questions to ask God. What is this you've done to us? Why have you done it to us? But here's something that's not good. When we follow that question, Lord, what is this you have done for us? Instead of asking why, we follow it with statements like all things are against me or I'm better off dead. You ever say that? I wish I was dead. I've said that. I've said that a few times in the last year, and, and then I end up in the hospital, and I don't realize I really don't wish I was dead. It's like somebody going in the mirror and saying, you know, I wish, you know, I wish I was ugly. You know, I wish I was wasn't so ugly. I mean, you, you, you. If if you, you no, know, I hate myself. I wish, you know. I wasn't so ugly. Well, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. But, but we, we, we make these rash statements, like I'm better off dead. I wish I was dead. And that's not a good thing. Because let me tell you what we're doing when we make statements like that. What we're doing, we're questioning the goodness of God. And that is a terrible thing to do. That's exactly what Jacob was doing here. I mean, Jacob of all people. One of the patriarchs questioning the very goodness of God. And, and if I were God, I would have just struck him dead right there. But isn't God merciful? That's the last lesson we see as we wrap this up. God is so merciful. When Jacob makes these statements, he's acting like Jacob, but in God's eyes, he's still Israel. He's still a prince with God. God had every right to strike him dead at this point, but he knew that Jacob was nothing more than dust. He knew that one day Jacob's faith was going to, that Jacob was weak, and one day that his faith was, more than once, his faith was going to fail him and 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 so even when Jacob makes these statements what is God doing God is still working good on behalf of Jacob Jacob does, at this point in his wildest dreams couldn't imagine the good things that God was preparing for him God was preparing a reunion with his son who he thought was dead God was prepared to put him in one of the most beautiful spots on this earth and and to live out his latter years. God was preparing him to one day be glorified in heaven. Uh, God was preparing him for all sorts of wonderful things. As Jacob was speaking these harsh things against God. You know, thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he knows that you and I are dust too. And when things get bad, things get terrible, and we ask that question... What is this, God, that you've done to me? And we follow that by something like, all things are against me, I wish I were dead. God still loves us. God still is working out all things together for our good. And God one day is going to finish his work and he's going to take us all to be with him in glory. So what is this that God has done to us let me tell you the best way to answer that question what God is what is this that God has done for us whatever it is no matter how bad it seems God is doing good on your behalf and on my behalf again that's for those who know the Lord if you don't know the Lord you look around and you see this country falling before your very eyes you better get serious about coming into a real relationship With Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, because all of us at times have have wished we were dead. We've all have said to ourselves, All things are against us, Lord. When really every we know that every single thing that happens to us is part of your grace, part of your goodness, part of all those things working together for our good. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for for all that you've done for us. Lord, during this very difficult time in which we live, we just ask that you uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you give us the peace and joy that can only come uh, through your Spirit, Lord, that we're able to go out into this world no matter how difficult things seem, no matter, how, no matter how difficult things are in our life, Lord, and to be the light that you've called us to be. Lord, we just ask for that... that uh, that grace, Lord, we ask for the opportunities that, that, don't, that you can give us to, to reach some of these people in this, in this world that are, that's perishing before our very eyes. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We thank you for the hope of the rapture, Lord. We're looking up and we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.